Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Hypothetically, think about this with me, hypothetically, what would absolutely surprise you to walk in to church and see? Dustin, what are you talking about? Talking about people or a person, who would you be absolutely surprised to walk into church and see? Who would you be shocked to walk into church and find? And perhaps more importantly, why? Why would it shock you? Why would it surprise you? If you would turn your Bibles with me to the book of Acts, we're going to go to chapter 9 this morning. As you turn, I just want to remind you of where we were last week with Matt in Acts chapters 7 and 8. We saw the horrific martyrdom of Stephen. Matt did a good job of laying out how brutal that was. He stated that it was a hot business. These guys laying aside their coats and hurling stones until a person died. Didn't happen quick. Most of the time, it was a hot business. It was a bloody business. It was a savage business. And after that, a great persecution arose against the church. And so it's a terrifying time for the church of Jesus Christ. It's a terrifying moment. The church is on the run. The church is being scattered. And yet, these people were genuine believers. They had seen the treasure. They knew the truth of the gospel. And so... Even though they were on the run, they didn't stop talking about it. They didn't stop believing it. That was out of the question. They knew who they were in Christ, and they knew that it's good news, good news that has to be shared, and so they continued to share it. And the Bible tells us in chapter 8 that as that persecution happens, as it unfolds, the gospel expands, actually. It doesn't diminish, and that's often the case in church history. When the church comes underneath the oppression of persecution, it's almost always the opposite effect, right? The opposite effect of what was intended. The gospel grows. The people of God are emboldened to share it more. And people believe it. They see it's true. They see it in the lives even of other people. They really believe this. They're not backing down. They're not going anywhere. And so persecution causes the gospel to spread. But as you think about this heavy moment for the church that's both simultaneously heavy and exciting, there's one figure that's at the sort of epicenter of all of that suffering, at the epicenter of all of that opposition or persecution. And we saw him at the end of chapter 7. You might, you might remember If you were watching in your mind's eye, if you were watching that execution unfold, Stephen being pelted with stones, you probably imagined, as Matt read, that the camera pans at one point over to a guy named Saul. And he's kind of overseeing the entire event. People have laid their clothes at his feet. And when the camera pans to him, what you find is an evil grin. I mean, this guy is 
villainous in every way. In fact, look at chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. In Acts chapter 8, the first verse is, and Saul approved of his execution. Saul is happy about this. Even though this is a savage, bloody affair, undoubtedly Saul has a smile on his face. And even as we have been mentioning, in the next verse it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Verse 2, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. There are people that are so mournful, so sorrowful over the loss of this young man who had the face of an angel in spite of the fact that he's being pelted with stones. And so they lament over him, but in contradistinction to him, to that, verse 3, Saul was on the warpath. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This guy Saul is a bad dude. You've got to see it in Luke's recording of this narrative. In fact, look at chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, he says here, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Just think about the descriptive words that Luke is using to describe this guy Saul, the colorful language. He's breathing out threats and murder. He was ravaging the church. He is dragging off men and women to prison. If you're following this narrative in Acts, it's almost like at this point, Luke has already given to Saul his own theme song. It's like, this is a bad dude. He is utterly evil. And I think it's important to, to grab this because I think Luke wants us to see the dark shadow that he casts over the church. Saul is a menace. He is enemy number one to the church of Jesus Christ. He hates Jesus in every way. Saul hates Jesus and he hates Christians and he's determined to destroy every last one. In fact, you see this in chapter 9, verse 2. What does Saul want to do? He's not content just to run them out of Jerusalem. He's tracking them down, verse 2. And he asked him, the high priest that he went to see, he asked the high priest for letters for official documentation, for jurisdiction to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is the second time Luke has denoted that as men and women. So Saul has no regard for any kind of propriety. He is just like, I'm going to stamp out Jesus Anybody, man, woman, child, anybody that claims to be with Jesus, they're going to get taken out. My friends, understand, this is a bad dude. Right now, he's a menace. He's going to be described in chapter 9 as evil, as wreaking havoc on the church. He is enemy number one. And now... He has authoritative permission and jurisdiction to chase them down everywhere. Now, just pause here for a moment and ask yourself the question, what would, have been, what, what would it have been like to be a part of the church at this point? Simultaneously exciting, right? 
God is changing your life. You've got something to live for. But it's also terrifying. You know that this guy Saul and his band of soldiers, they could show up at your gathering space at any moment. They could show up at your house at any moment. If you're a kid, like your mom and dad could be dragged off to prison at any moment. It's a terrifying thing. This guy Saul is a menace. He's breathing out threats, ravaging the church, dragging off men and women to prison. So he's tracking down, grab this, he's tracking down the Christians, but there's someone tracking him. Did you guys grab that? I know we've been together a lot this weekend, and maybe, maybe you're a little tired. Let me just say that again. Saul is tracking down the Christians, trying to end them in every way, but there's someone else tracking him. Amen? Amen indeed. Check out your text, verse 3. We're just going to read, and as we read, I want you to notice with me the surprise, the surprise. First of all, the Saul. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord or Master? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Pause right here. What a moment. Here is Paul, you can, or Saul, I should say. You can just imagine this guy with all kinds of swagger, right? All kinds of swagger. He's enemy number one. Everybody is terrified of him. He's got official documentation. He's about to drag more Christians off to prison. He's the man, right? Approaching Damascus. But then suddenly, he's on his face. In moments, he can't even see He's being led around by his band, by the hand. Think about it. This guy is suddenly, instantaneously humbled. Why? Because he meets Jesus. Amen? He meets Jesus. Know with me the detail here. Uh, Luke records that it's a bright, sudden, it's a bright light. Um, in fact, Paul will later go on to tell his own testimony two more times in Luke's record of the book of Acts. And later, I think it's chapter 26, uh, Luke gives us a little more detail. Paul gives us more detail about this moment. He tells us that it happened midday when the sun is bright. But then he says, and there was a bright light, brighter than the sun. You guys have been driving midday before, I'm sure, and you've seen the sun bright, right? And it's difficult to see sometimes. It's very bright. But can you imagine a brightness that dwarfs the sun? Just imagine this moment. Suddenly Saul is overwhelmed by this bright light that is ten times brighter, a hundred times brighter than the sun. Imagine this. And then he hears a voice. A voice that says this, Saul, by name, identifying this guy by name, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then via a question, Saul finds out, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. 
the one he's seeking to destroy, the one he's seeking to stamp out in the world, the one he hates with every fiber of his being, with a passion, this one is standing before him in his risen, glorified state. The glory of Christ appears to Saul and he's overwhelmed. And in this moment, he's converted. There's no deliberation, my friends. In this moment, he's converted. First of all, because Jesus just overwhelms him with his sovereign electing grace. You see that? In fact, later in this text, he's going to say, I chose you. I have already set you apart. I have something for you to do. The Lord had a plan for Saul. And so in this moment, it was an instantaneous conversion, an instantaneous regeneration of this man. He was going one way, and now he's going to turn and go completely the other direction because of the Lord's sovereign grace. Amen? The Lord's sovereign grace. But you also understand inside of that that Saul is uniquely prepared for this moment. On one hand, he's the enemy of the church, right? He's the enemy of Christ. But inside of that, what we understand about Saul is that he has studied. He understands the Old Testament. He doesn't accurately interpret it yet, but he understands the storyline of the Old Testament. He understands all the prophecies about the Messiah. He just doesn't believe that Jesus is that Messiah. But in this moment, when he sees the resurrected Lord, all the pieces for, for Saul come together, and he's instantaneously aware of the fact that this is the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for all along. He's the one that has come to take away the sins of the world. Amen? He's convinced. He's convinced. It doesn't take him any time. He's convinced, having seen the resurrected Lord, he is the Messiah. And this is going to be evident in what happens next. Saul is converted, and I just want to pause here and just rejoice with you in the fact that this is a miracle. Amen? This is a miracle. A miracle of grace has just occurred in our reading of the Scripture. Not in this moment right now. I'm just saying, we just read about a miracle of grace. Here's enemy number one. Enemy number one, menace to the church of Jesus Christ on his way to do more damage to Jesus and suddenly, suddenly he's overwhelmed by the grace of God. Suddenly this guy is absolutely transformed. It's a miracle. Okay? It's an absolute miracle. But what I want to see as we continue to read this text is that it's not just a shock to Saul or just a shock to his band, his merry band, all right, that are out to do and wreak havoc. It's a shock to everyone. And I want you to see that from this text because I think there's something really important for us to grab this morning. This is an absolute surprise. See it as we read. Verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. We don't know much about this guy, Ananias. But he has an important role to play in this moment. So the Lord appears to him. The Lord comes to Ananias, this believer, in Damascus through a vision. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, 
he is praying. By the way, just parenthetically, let me say, wouldn't you like to hear those prayers of Saul? Undoubtedly, he's so repentant, so sorrowful for what he's been about, having now realized that Jesus is the Christ. He's the one who died for his sin. I would love to have heard, just I'd love to hear a recording of those prayers of Saul, undoubtedly just filled with repentance, but also filled with worship and gratitude. God, thank you for saving me. The chief of sinners, thank you for saving me. So, in your mind, see Saul praying, but then in another house, on another street, there's Ananias talking with the Lord. And the Lord says, Ananias, I want you to go where Saul of Tarsus is praying. Let's continue to read verse 12. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias, like, this is you, come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, note the surprise, note the shock. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority. So word has gotten out about this dispatch, this jurisdiction that Saul has here in Damascus. He has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So, so what is Ananias saying? Perhaps this is the first and last time he ever gets a vision from Jesus. And in that moment, he's so surprised, he's like, <clears throat> pause for a moment. Just to be clear, Jesus, we're talking about the same person, right? We're talking about Saul of Tarsus. Jesus, really, you're sending me there? Really? Him? He's our enemy. Like, he's, he's evil, Lord. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, go, verse 15, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So, verse 17, even though this is a total shock for this guy, Ananias. He obeys, he departs, and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, is that the next word? This is beautiful, I think, for our hearts, and instructive for us. What a blessing it is. Ananias goes, he puts his hand on Saul's shoulder, this guy who minutes, perhaps minutes before, He's absolutely terrified of. And what does he say? Brother. Isn't that beautiful? He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. This was an incredible shock to Ananias, but it's also going to be a shock to everyone in Damascus. He's there with the disciples, verse 20, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus. So 
There is no moss underneath Saul's feet. <laughs> okay? He's on a mission to destroy. Now he's on a mission to save. Right? This guy's awesome. He immediately starts preaching the gospel, preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. Verse 21, and all who heard him were what? They were amazed. Or he might put in that blank, shocked. Totally astonished. Totally surprised and said, is not this man? Is not this, excuse me, the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? What in the world is going on? This is crazy. Has, has this guy Saul lost his nut? Right? Verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So Saul just continues to preach. Everyone's amazed. Everyone's sort of dumbfounded. This guy lost his mind. Is he off his nut? This is crazy. Saul preaches the gospel. They're not the only ones that are shocked. Verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. So you can just imagine this. These guys who were former allies to Saul when he was on the mission to kill Christ, to kill any Christian, these guys who were former allies are like, he definitely off his nut. We've got to you know, exercise some damage control. You've got to put this guy to death. And so they plot to kill him, but verse 24, their plot came to be known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. Verse 25, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, here again, another group of people that are shocked, Again, see this, my friends. They're totally surprised. He attempted to join the disciples. He attempts, if you will, to go to church in Jerusalem on a Sunday. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. So, if you will, they gather for church on a Sunday, and Saul is sitting there, and they're like, nope, nope, get him out. I'm not buying that. He cannot be here, right? This is clearly a mole. This is clearly a plant, right? They don't believe. But, verse 27, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So, he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And his life is, <laughs> his life is never dull, is it, this guy? Verse 30, And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So, verse 31, With enemy number one taken out of the equation, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. All right, so we just walked through this text, noticing the shock. But let me just review them 
with you for a moment. First, you have Ananias. He's like, Lord, really? Did you say Saul? I just want to make sure we are on the right person, Saul of Tarsus. Thinking the right way? Yes, it's Saul. Go. You have people in the synagogues. They're like, is he crazy? He's supposed to be here to stamp out Christianity, but he is here in the synagogues preaching about Jesus, proving that he is the Christ. Then you have Jews, these former allies of, the, uh, of um, this terrorist Saul, and they're like, we need to totally exercise some damage control and get him out of the way. And then you have the church at Jerusalem where Saul shows up and they're like, no, not buying it. There is no way that this guy is legit. It seems that everybody, my friends, everybody is like, what is Saul doing with Christians? Why is Saul in church? Surprise, shock. A few years ago, uh, Kanye West, made a public profession of faith. That he was trusting in Christ alone. And I don't know exactly where Kanye West is today, but I can tell you that if you showed up at church one Sunday, in fact, a little bit familiar with the church that he was going to in California, it's a solid Bible teaching church just like this one. I think you would be a little bit surprised to see Kanye West and Kim Kardashian just sitting there in the pew. Would you be a little bit, just a little bit surprised to see Kanye and Kim. Some of you might not even know who that is. It's okay. I saw a few puzzled looks. Uh, Kanye and Kim. That might be a little surprising, but can I just say to you, that is nothing. That is nothing compared to this. I just want to make sure that we grab this. That is nothing compared to what we're seeing in chapter 9. I think it's easy for us just to read through these chapters and not really grab the staggering nature of it. It would be more like this. It would be more like going to a solid Bible-teaching church in the Ukraine right now, showing up at church one Sunday, and seated on one side is Vladimir Putin. That would be a shock, would it not? That would be a shock. Imagine that you show up at that Ukrainian church and you see Vladimir Putin and your instant thought is, man, this is a bad thing today. Undoubtedly, this church and property is surrounded by soldiers and we're not going to make it out of here alive. At some point, he's going to stand up and say, you are all either going to die or go to prison. But let's just say that the church service continues. And as the church service continues, eventually Vladimir Putin stands up and goes with you to the communion table. Imagine that. Imagine what that would be like, you in your mind knowing that this guy is responsible for killing some of your family. This guy has blood on his hands with regard to some of your friends, definitely your fellow countrymen. What is that guy doing in church? That would be a shock, would it not? A total surprise. My friends, that's much closer to this reality. Here in Acts chapter 9, the church gathered at Jerusalem is going, that guy killed my neighbor. He's dragged so-and-so off to prison, and they're still there, and he's in church. Just think about the reality of that moment. Would that be a surprise? I think that would be a total surprise. 
question is why. Now, at some level, we understand this, right? We can understand this. Normal human nature. But there are a couple of things that I want to encourage you with this morning, share with you this morning that I, that I believe are apropos to this text. Number one is this. I want to encourage you, my friends, don't underestimate the power of the gospel. That sounds obvious, right? Are you guys getting a bunch of feedback? You getting a bunch of feed, feedback from my mic? Do I need to do something? We good? Keep rolling? Am I too close to this side? What do I need to do? Just keep rolling? All right, keep rolling. Don't underestimate the power of the gospel. And can I say this? Starting with you. Starting with you. Don't ever lose sight, my friends, of the miracle of grace that God has worked in you. It's a miracle that you're here this morning. Totally amen. It's an absolute miracle that God in his sovereignty has allowed you to hear the gospel, allowed you to understand I'm a sinner in need of a savior and he came. The son of God came and he died for me and he's extended an invitation for me to repent and believe the gospel, to be adopted into his family. It's not a foregone conclusion that you came to hear that news. My friends, that's a miracle. It's a miracle of God's grace. Don't lose that, okay? Because I think the second we do lose that and we start just assuming, well, of course, of course we've got it. Of course we understand it. That, that's the moment we start going off into a lot of different off-ramps that are terrible, not only for theology, but for the practice of faith. Don't ever lose sight of the miracle of grace that God has worked in you. You, your presence here this morning is an absolute miracle, but also, and I hope that I can say this as an encouragement to your soul this morning, an encouragement to your heart, the reality of Saul's conversion and countless, by the way, countless other Saul's, but the reality of Saul's conversion in this text should encourage our hearts that there is no one beyond the reach of God's grace. No one. God can save anyone. There are no lost causes in the kingdom of God. Amen? None. Period. So this should encourage our hearts. Uh, check out what Paul would later say in 1 Timothy 1. He says, formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Now, those adjectives describing who Paul was as Saul of Tarsus. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent of Christ and his gospel. But the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He never got over it. My friends, he never got over the fact that it was a miracle in his mind, a miracle that Jesus came to him and overwhelmed him with his grace. My friends, as you see that, as you marvel at that reality that 
Jesus saved Saul, understand he can save anyone. He can save anyone. Maybe this morning you come absolutely burdened for a child that's not walking with the Lord or doesn't know Jesus. Maybe you come this morning with family members, parents, cousins, aunts, uncles that that don't know Jesus, perhaps even are insolent opponents of the gospel. Can I just encourage your heart this morning? Keep praying. Keep praying. Keep sharing. Keep loving. Keep living. No one, please hear me, no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. Amen? No one. Period. If you can save Saul, you can save anyone. What a blessing this is. Be encouraged. Don't lose heart. My friends, don't lose heart. There are no lost causes. Number two, I want to encourage you, don't overestimate your assessment of God's work in others. And if the first comes as an encouragement to your heart, I want to encourage you to take this as a challenge, as a bit of a confrontation to your mind and to your heart. We don't, can I say this? We don't know what God is doing in other people's hearts. We don't. Sometimes we think we do. Perhaps if we were in very close proximity, we can see things. Maybe if they tell us, we can know some things, but we don't ultimately know what God is doing in other people. And I just want to caution us to be very, very, very slow to cast doubt upon God's work in other people. I've been in too many scenarios in which people think that they're smarter than God, right? We should be very, very slow to give any encouragement to that person because I just know that they're faking. I just know that they're putting on a show. And you know what? You don't know. You don't know. Period. You don't. Now, please hear me. Please hear me. I'm not saying that there isn't room for discernment. I'm not saying that. That's a conversation to be had. I'm not saying that we should take a murderer who was saved last week and make him the pastor next week. But please track with me. Isn't that kind of close what happens here? He's the murderer. And then like a few days later, he's in a synagogue in Damascus preaching. They're like, that's the preacher right there. It's amazing. It's astonishing. And it doesn't happen that quick. Please hear me. It doesn't happen that quick. But literally, what happens in this story is that in Acts chapter 9, Saul is saved. He's number one threat to the church, but he's saved in Acts chapter 9. And by, by the time you get to Acts chapter 13, he's kind of the rest of the story. He becomes the absolute leader of the early church. This guy Saul, who becomes Paul, will go on to write at least 13 books of the Bible. Remarkable. So can I encourage you, don't overestimate your assessment of his work in others. There's someone in this story that we, I think, need to be more like. It's a guy by the name of Barnabas. We saw a glimpse of it with Ananias when he goes and puts his hand on Saul's shoulder, not because he's seen anything, but just because he believes God. He puts his hand on Saul's shoulder and goes, brother, it's a beautiful moment, I think. But you also see Barnabas. Know with me verse 27. 
when Saul comes to church in Jerusalem, everybody's like, nope, get him out. There's no chance that that guy's legit. But verse 27, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared. Barnabas is like, guys, he's good. He's good. Like We can work with this guy. He's, he's been changed. He's been transformed. Barnabas called the son of encouragement. What a blessing he is. I've often thought about this moment and one that I want to show you. Just flip over really quick to chapter 11. In chapter 11, I've often thought, like, if it wasn't for Barnabas and God's plan, like, where would Saul have gone? I think Saul still would have been preaching for sure. You weren't going to stop that guy. But notice the role that Barnabas has when he comes to Jerusalem. Barnabas is like, apostles, guys, like, this guy is our brother. Hear him out. Watch him teach. God's done a work in this brother. Look at uh, chapter 11, verse 25. We'll probably talk about this a little bit next week, but the context is that the Spirit of God is doing a great work in Antioch, and so the church at Jerusalem is like, we've got to go inspect it, see if it's actually legit. And so they send Barnabas to inspect what's going on in Antioch. He goes there, and he's like, this is amazing. This is the work of God. It's wonderful. And so what Barnabas does in this moment is he sees an opportunity here to plug Saul into ministry in an official capacity. And so, verse 25, so, Saul, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians, by the way. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but from the church at Antioch, Saul and Barnabas would go out on their missionary journeys. This church that sends, that sets apart Barnabas and Saul, or Barnabas and Paul. What a blessing this is. Can I encourage you? Be very slow. Be very careful about assuming you know exactly what's going on in someone else. Let's understand that God's grace can change anyone. Amen? Number three, don't undersell what God can do with broken people. Don't undersell what God can do with broken people. You might say, Dustin, that's, that's a whole point of overlap. But, okay, maybe it is. It's intentional overlap. We need to see this. I think, in reality, even though I've gotten ahead of myself, we haven't really seen the biggest surprise of the story. The biggest surprise of the whole story is not that Saul would be changed by the gospel. It's not that Saul would become a Christian. The biggest surprise of the whole story is that Saul would become the leader of the early church. This is remarkable. At least 13 books of the Bible are going to be written by this guy. This guy that Luke initially described as essentially a savage ravaging the church. He's evil. He's creating havoc. He is all about Stephen getting murdered. That guy that we saw panned to and saw that villainous grin on his face, that guy is going to become the leader of the early church. It's remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. 
My friends, don't undersell what God can do with broken people. It's exciting, even this morning, to be reminded of how God has transformed many in this room that would be willing to say, I was broken. By the way, we're all broken. Correct? We're all broken. But many who would be willing to say, via testimony, and you don't know where I was. You don't know the dark place I was in. You don't know where my sin had taken me. I was in the pit. And he came and grabbed me, and he's transformed my life. And here's what I want to say to you. God can use you. Brother, sister, friend, God can use you in mighty ways. In mighty ways. But right now, this church has an opportunity to support a guy by the name of Keenan Hurst. And at some point, we'll probably have him uh, preach on a Sunday. A little backstory about Keenan. He grew up not far from here in Nebraska from the age of 15 to 35. Keenan was sentenced to prison five times. He spent over 10 years in prison. But this May, Keenan is going to graduate with his Master's in Divinity from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. That was probably a good spot for an amen. I don't know. And he is going to go to Alaska and pastor and plant churches in Alaska. And we're just thrilled to be able to help him with some of his startup costs from out of our missions budget. We've gotten to know him a little bit and just so impressed with this brother and just so thankful for God's work in his life. little tiny backstory about how he came to know Jesus. He was in prison and one day was like super annoyed with his cellmate. And someone came down the hall and said, hey, Bible study in cell whatever. And he was like, anything to get away from that guy. And so he walks down the hall, goes to Bible study, hears the gospel, is gloriously saved, eventually meets a girl in Columbus who's a Christian. They get married. They now have three kids. And he's graduating from seminary and going to Alaska to an unreached people group to preach the gospel. That's awesome. Amen. We can praise the Lord with that, right? Please, not golf clap, real clap. That's awesome. That's exciting. That's what God does. He changes people. He changes lives. So don't undersell it. Don't overestimate your ability to superintend what God's doing. God's doing things that are bigger than us. Amen? God wants to use you. And he wants to use those around you. And his grace can change anyone. No one is without the reach of God's grace. We need to believe that. We need to have a culture that believes that and works with people and believes that God's grace is great. One of the reasons why one of our pillars is to be surrounded by grace. Because every one of us in this room is a miracle of grace. No one in this room is here by our own merit. And we must believe, we must believe as we exit those doors that God can change anyone, that God can save anyone, that God can use anyone for his glory. Amen? He did with Saul. He can do it with you. He can do it with many. Let's pray that he would. God, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you so much for saving a wretch like me
Father, I know how unworthy I am to be yours, and I know how unworthy I am to be up here preaching to my friends. I don't deserve to be up here. Not on my merit. God, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. If everybody in this audience knew every thought that I've had, they wouldn't be here probably. I'm a sinner. I'm nothing. And I own that before you, God. And I just thank you for your scandalous, radical grace to come in and grab me and adopt me into your family. I'm so thankful for that. I'm overwhelmed by that. So God, I pray that you would help us to have out of that a mentality. Help me to have out of my amazement at your grace a mentality that you can save anybody. Pray that you would expand your grace, your gospel, and the power of it through this place for your glory. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.